0: Hello and welcome to How To Grow A CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host, Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Dipti Katru, CMO at Broadridge. In this episode, you'll learn how growing up in an Air Force family taught Dipti the value of purpose and diversity. The holistic approach that Dipti takes to brand and demand, partly thanks to the friendly arguments she used to have with a colleague. The simple principle that can help to unite marketing, sales, and product teams and the fundamental, timeless piece of advice that Dipty keeps coming back to. From the CMO crowd, this is How To Grow A CMO. Hello and welcome to How To Grow A CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. On the show, we hear stories and secrets from leading CMOs and discuss the values, skills, and strategies they use to drive growth for the biggest B2B brands in the world. How to Grow a CMO is part of the CMO Crowd, the peer-led community for senior marketing leaders. You can stay up to date with all our episodes, events, and exclusive member-only content at cmocrowd.com. My guest today is Dipti Katru, CMO at Broadridge. She has extensive experience in marketing for wealth management, banking, and asset management, having held senior positions at Chase Bank, JP Morgan, and Oppenheimer funds. Broadridge is a global fintech leader with $5 billion in revenues. They help clients capitalize on what's next with communications, technology, data, and analytics to drive their business forward. Dipti Khatri, welcome to How to Grow a CMO.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ali.
0: Dipti, could you start? by telling me the story of how you got into marketing.
1: Sure. It, uh, it wasn't where I started. So I was uh, at university, starting to be a lawyer. I was doing my, ma- my undergrad in political science. And I started to work with a marketing agency, a promotional marketing agency, to just for some extra cash. And that was my first introduction to the world of brand and marketing. And, and I was hooked. Uh, and so by the time I graduated, uh, any aspirations to be a lawyer was set aside. And uh, I just wanted to go build brands and uh, use marketing as a, as a tool of driving business growth.
0: Well, I'm glad marketing managed to save, save another one from falling into the law. Um, there you go. Uh, was it always a plan of yours to get into financial services after you know, working at Oppenheimer, JP Morgan, now Broadridge? Was financial services always a goal?
1: No, it wasn't. In fact, I you know I always joke that 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 no enthusiastic marketer you know starts by saying they want to go work for a mutual fund company, um, but but that's how you know that's where I ended up. I spent about you know five years of my marketing early marketing journey at the promotional marketing agency I was talking about. Maybe we'll come back to that and, and, and talk about how that sort of has shaped me to be the marketer I am. But um, you know I then moved from India where I grew up. To, to the US. And the first, you know, great opportunity I got was with a mutual fund company. And so, you know, I jumped right in. It was, it was a great brand. It was a great organization. Um, it was, uh, uh, I knew nothing about mutual funds, uh, but it, it sort of set me on the course. Uh, and I thought I would, you know, go back to the world of CPG and I never did. And 20 years later, here I am.
0: Good. And I'm sure Broadridge, you're very happy that you are. You mentioned that you grew up in India. How did your early life influence who you are today? So, so you grew up there. Your dad was in the military, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, how did all that shape you when it came to leadership, values, and culture?
1: Yeah, so I grew up uh, in the Air Force. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Indian Air Force. And, and truly, it I think it has had an incredible impact on not just who I am as a person, my core values, but also how I think about our team, um, our purpose, uh, and sort of my personal leadership style. So if you think about the Air Force the thing that taught me a few things, one, uh, it was always about, it was, it, was, it was always about more than just yourself, right? You, there was, as, as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, as part of the Air Force family, you were driven by a purpose that was larger than you. And that's always been very core to how I see the world. Right? It's, it's always about the impact you can have beyond yourself, and I think that came from the Air Force and, and beyond yourself in a sort of much greater, more ambitious way. Uh, the second was the Air Force was just a natural melting pot, uh, diversity of, of, of folks from an experience perspective, what parts of the country they came from, and you just learned to appreciate that diversity and cherish it and value it. And uh, that's been something I always look for in organizations and teams. And if, you know, I can do anything to enhance the diversity of thought, of experience, of culture, uh, it's something I strive for as a leader. Uh, And, you know, I think the last thing I would say is on a personal front, the Air Force gave me what I consider to be one of my greatest strengths is just being able to navigate change well Uh, as you can imagine, I moved every couple of years, which meant new schools, new friends, new environments to work through. And so that's just part of who I am today. Like I'm not um, overwhelmed by change. I could be incredibly adaptable. I always joke that you could drop me anywhere and I'll figure my way out because I've learned how to navigate uh, new environments. And I think uh, I'm incredibly grateful for sort of my early life in the Air Force uh, for giving me that skill.
0: That's amazing. I was speaking to Mandy Dallywell, CMO at Nutanix, the other day, and she talked about how her early life as part of a very large family had influenced her growing up. And I love hearing those stories of those, those things you might never hear about marketers, otherwise that have such a, a large impact on how they see the world. Moving on now to brand and demand. Um, you mentioned to me previously that you don't see brand and demand as binary, which is something I agree with wholeheartedly. But you mentioned also that this wasn't always the case. In fact, you used to have very happy arguments with a peer of yours when you first started out about the merits of brand versus demand. So, could you tell me about that and how it led to your current point of view around brand and demand?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a topic I'm incredibly passionate about because I think over the years the you know the industry has done a disservice to ourselves in being in, in sort of you know pitting brand and demand against each other. And I've always felt uh, that when you think about holistic marketing, you've, you've got to understand the role both of them play in driving the end goal, which could be the growth of a product, which could be right, deepening of a relationship with clients. which could be building loyalty, whatever that, that goal is. Uh, brand and demand are sort of just like connected at the hip uh, and done right. Uh, actually can be incredibly powerful. The, the challenge you often have is in in how you think about measurement and outcomes right the, the demand side of it tends to just have a shorter more immediate term value associated with it which is which is which could it's almost like a drug because you can start to see results right away. you can attribute those results you can go back to your business leaders or your CFOs and, and define the, the, the power of it. Uh, you know, brand and the role of brand is, is a game of patience and and long term commitment. It is it is a mid term and a long term view, and so you need to believe in, in the connectivity of both to really think about what the right answer is. And yeah, I mean, the chase. Um, what I learned in you know was the power of a performance marketing engine at scale, fueled by data, fueled by machine learning and AI to make it more predictive. Uh, and being able to measure it, you know, by the minute in terms of the impact it could have, which is which was powerful. But when you think about the experience a client has over a, a, a short, medium, and long term, br- the brand side of the story starts to become as important as the demand story is. And finding that balance was what, what I loved about that job. It was It was lots of discussions on how you balance the values of a brand and the brand experience with the the obvious best practices in direct response. Uh, and sometimes it was about, you know, what an email needed to look like, uh, you know, what the color of a button might be. So it might feel really, really silly, but it started to sort of unlock a discussion about the role they both played. And I think the, the industry more recently, I think just, just this morning, I was reading an article about both, I think Google and Facebook are thinking of changing their attribution models to bring in a more medium and long-term impact, uh, which I think is fantastic. I think it'll help marketers um, really deliver on the promise of brand and demand together.
0: That's so great to hear. And, and it's one thing, switching your point of view to, to that more holistic model of the world, model of marketing, how, as you mentioned, it requires more medium or long-term thinking. How do you sell that into the businesses you work with?
1: It, you know, It's a work in progress. I think there is, you've got to show I always call it beacons of progress. You've got to show points of light, and you've got to also educate your partners that attribution doesn't work for everything. So I'm sort of the biggest fan of attribution and when you can start to deliver very clear ROI. But if you fall into the trap of making that your only KPI, then you've, you've, you've created uh, the problem on not being able to invest in brand in the long term. And so when you start to think about brand health studies, think about perception management over a window of time, doing more controlled tests to show the relationship between brand and, and demand, I think you start to educate you know, your partners on the power of both together, and it doesn't have to be binary, for sure.
0: Thank you. I think that's fantastic advice. How to Grow a CMO is a CMO Crowd Podcast brought to you by The Marketing Practice a global integrated B2B marketing agency that brings together all the skills you need in one place to design and run marketing programs. You can access all our videos, reports, and a peer-led community designed to help you keep on learning at CMOcrowd.com. Moving on to Chase, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you moved there in 2013. Mm -hmm. It's one of the biggest consumer banks in the country with over 23 million customers, I believe. Um, You've mentioned that that changed your perception of banks because previously you thought of them as being transactional, but Chase showed you the value of customer experience and relationships. What was it about Chase that changed your mind?
1: The simplest answer there was it was the people. I had the privilege of working with just incredible marketers and thought leaders in the industry who were thinking about not just the role of financial services in enabling a transaction or right, moving money from point A to point B. Uh, it was about the human side of money, right? The, the purpose behind what this meant, what it meant to help uh, families think about their next goal, right? Whether it was making ends meet or investing their kids' education or thinking about retirement or taking that next vacation. Money is is more than just sort of that transactional value of money. And so I think for Chase, um, it was about unlocking that narrative of the role they played, uh, not just for the marketers for the purpose of marketing, but for, for the product teams, for the client experience teams. So this goes back to the idea of purpose. Right. The role of the bank was, was not just to deliver on shareholder value, but the role of the bank was to enable better outcomes for, for the people they served. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. That just naturally led to a more client-centric way of looking at marketing, uh, a more client-centric way of looking at product. And so you know, one of my favorite assignments was to help develop a product for affluent millennials. As millennials were starting to earn more and save more, Right. their banking needs and their investment needs were very different. What they were expecting in terms of how they wanted to be served, in much more of an omni child manner, um, how ease of use was important. Uh, so the, it was just a it was a different orientation to solving uh, product design, client experience, and then of course sort of the marketing and the positioning and the go to market of it, and and being able to do so at scale when you're talking about you know. I think about 24, 25 million now customers in the consumer bank, but Chase as, as a financial service organization served about 60 million customers. So doing that at scale uh, and and doing it with the power of data behind it was just incredibly gratifying and, and great learning ground for me.
0: Incredible opportunity, as you say, to learn how things might work at scale. Yeah, um, We could probably have a sidebar about the value of millennials as a, as a demographic segment, but um, moving past that, what about that? Did, you know, did that approach to marketing change the sort of data that you collected?
1: It did. It did. And, and it, it taught me two things. It taught me the power of sort of machine learning and predictable data, especially when you have data at scale. But it also taught me what to look for when you don't have the benefit of that. Right Today, in a B2B organization that is not as forward in its maturity curve in how we use data and how predictable marketing can be, um, if, you, if you hold yourselves to the standards of all or nothing, right, you start to not make as much progress. And so understanding the principles of what we were doing with data, what we were learning from it, is now something I'm trying to pull through. No, you know, clearly not at the same scale. Uh, you know, for example, I talked to my team about it, it, it doesn't necessarily always have to be predictive, right? It doesn't have to be statistically proven, right, for you to start to learn from it. And so just the fact that we can teach ourselves to look at data more frequently, try and see trends that we might be able to learn from, uh, let that fuel some of our experimentation uh, in itself is a way forward than uh, sort of instinct-based marketing, which I think uh, was sort of very core to how B2B worked.
0: And now, obviously, you've taken some of those lessons and, and you're working at Broadridge. Could you tell me a little bit about what Broadridge does?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, so, you know, y- you gave us a, a quick high-level description. We are a global fintech um, that serve wealth managers, asset managers, financial services, essentially. And uh, we offer infrastructure technology that enables the financial markets. We're often the, the instrumentation under the hood, if you may. Uh, we play a critical role in enabling governance. Uh, as you think about more investors in the market with the democratization of investing, uh, we play a critical role in helping them deliver on their governance obligations, right? Vote on their shares, have a say in the market, participate in the market. And so engaging investors and shareholders is a large part of the of the capabilities that we bring to market. And then we have technology operations that are really focusing on helping financial services companies simplify, technology, workflow, infrastructure, to be able to deliver efficiency and drive growth and differentiation. So it's, it's, a, it's been a fascinating journey in the last 11 months for me to learn about what Broadridge does. You know, I often call it, these are the invisible products. As consumers, we don't interact with it. We don't understand they even exist. I didn't realize a lot of these things existed and the complexity in the engineering that goes behind it. this is mission critical stuff. You can't get this wrong when you're enabling the financial markets. Uh, and so, you know, a part of my um, effort is to bring these stories of what Broadridge does to life in a more relevant and meaningful way. Uh, to continue to, to sort of showcase the innovation, the commitment, the experience that exists in this organization that then fuels uh, the financial services ecosystem that we as consumers interact with.
0: I love hearing you say that because um, I think B two B sometimes isn't doesn't celebrate enough. You know that we we're looking at the businesses that make the world work um, mm-hmm. and, and working for an agency, one of the things that I find most exciting is discovering these incredible businesses who are fundamental to how we go about so much, much of our lives, um, who other people might never have heard of before. And you feel like you're discovering this incredibly huge secret um, and you can't quite believe that you've never heard of it before. So it's, yeah, it's a lovely time, lovely time to be in B2B. I love
1: that you say that.
0: So the industry is undergoing a lot of changes and being impacted by various different pressures. Broadridge is is changing its products and transforming to meet and help his clients meet those challenges. What's the role that marketing plays at Broadridge in supporting that?
1: Great question. The way I look at it is is, is we have three critical roles. As an organization that is incredibly complex uh, and delivers products that not everyone touches and feels. Uh, the role of the brand is critical in being able to explain what we do and how we do it. Right? For me, the success of, of a brand strategy is when it becomes a competitive advantage for the organization. Not just a beacon that displays or, or showcases what the organization does, but becomes a driver of business and a competitive advantage. And so that's the mission we're on as a marketing organization to take Broadridge, which is a, it's got str- strong equity in the market. People know of Broadridge. People don't always understand the power of what we do. And I think that's going to be the tipping point for us when we think about powering a brand. The second, and this is something you know that goes back to the conversation of brand and demand, um, the B2B purchase cycle has changed, right? In how consumers or our clients or B2B buyers are actually uh, using digital. How the purchase behavior, the purchase cycle is no longer a linear wave of interacting with salespeople and having meetings. I think marketing is helping demystify that and also enhance and enable sort of this non linear purchase behavior uh, through the power of data, through the power of client experience, through the power of, of being able to engage in a more personalized and more relevant way in the right time, in the right place. Now, I will tell you, we're, we're not there yet. But that's, that's where the world is going. And uh, marketing is playing a critical role in bringing data, insights, education, and then the enablement to actually make that happen in a scalable way. The third is, is something i truly believe whether it's B2B or B2C, is the marketer is uniquely qualified to, to be an advocate for the customer. I, we're sitting there, we're looking at the data, we, we've got no worse in the race, right? It's, it's really about soaking in what we see in the market and to be an advocate for the customer. And so I've always looked at my role as not just being the CMO responsible for a suite of marketing programs, but how can the insight I have influence um, product design, our strategic investments, um and really sort of shape the uh the 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 direction of the organization uh to continue to give us a competitive edge and
0: growth thank you that sounds like an incredibly eloquent and articulate explanation of the role of marketing at broadridge obviously there's there are things that are unique to broadridge in how you approach marketing they're also the impacts of the wider the wider climate so where are you focusing your marketing investments right now given the pressures of the current economic climate
1: it's you know it's a it's an evolving journey. The you know as a new CMO, I'll tell you uh, the balance has been in uh, ensuring that when we're when we're marketing, we're putting dollars behind product marketing or segment marketing. It truly is being put in place with the right KPIs. Uh, so we're we're very surgical about the role. The campaign, the dollars, the resources are playing in enabling an outcome, uh, and that requires us being incredibly coordinated with our product partners, or business heads, or P&L owners, and our sales organization. And often, marketing is in the middle, of trying to sort of create a level of cohesion and alignment on what's most important. Uh, and that's where, you know, there's a lot of questions on, do we really need it? Is it going to drive any outcome? Are we doing it? Because we've always done it. So there's a little bit of the, let's make sure that, that every dollar we spend is, is in service um, of an outcome that we can, you know, that, that we can justify and measure. Uh, at the same time, I am incredibly focused on building out our infrastructure and technology to enable better decision-making. And so this is sort of the classic, it's just like our conversation on, on brand and demand, which is the balancing the short term with the long term. I'm, I'm trying to retain that discipline, even in how we think about marketing investments in terms of, you know, how do we keep programs on that drive demand today? But how do we invest both in brand and how do we invest in our data and technology architecture so we can make better decisions with our resources tomorrow? It's a fine balance.
0: I'm, I'm sure it is and, and everyone always talks about these balances as if they found it and as if it's a stationary thing uh, which of course it never is in practice
1: no it isn't
0: you mentioned there the focus on how you're aligning with with sales and with products and, and other internal teams are there mechanical things that you do that you find help to align with those different teams i don't,
1: I don't know if i call it mechanical. I mean, sure, there's sort of the discipline of how you engage and the frequency of engagement. I think the, the heart of it is you've got to know the business. And, it's, and it seems really obvious, but, you know, over my 20-year journey now, the best marketers I have known go deep and deeply understand the business. But, but there's a lot of marketers who just stay, stay right at the top Right. You sort of come with your box of tricks as a marketer and your playbooks and you deploy those playbooks, but you never go deep enough to understand the business. I think that's the challenge, both in terms of building credibility with your partners when you're trying to build alignment or you're trying to sort of change uh, old behavior or you're trying to try something new and experiment with a new new marketing program. And second, when the going gets tough, like, you know, in times where you've got to watch every dollar you spend and make some smart decisions, knowing the business as well as your partners do gives you the confidence to be able to guide those conversations, which I think are really important. So, yeah, I mean, you know, yes, we are are deeply focused on our interlock. We've got mechanisms to... Uh, you know, plan more frequently in moments like these, realign on areas that need more, more support based on what we're seeing in the sales organization or where we're driving more demand for, what needs more help. Uh, but I think the, the, really the, the baseline of all of that is how deeply do you understand the client, the client need, the business, the sales process, how we make money. Uh, and then how do you use all of that information to, to just be a better partner, a more consultative partner across the room?
0: A lovely simple principle that just aligning around what it is that the business and the customer needs. Thinking about the role of the CMO in general across, across all these different organizations, how do you see the role of the CMO changing over the next five years? And maybe perhaps equally important, what do you see not changing over the next five years?
1: Let me start with what I see not changing. I think CMO will continue to be the advocate for the customer. You have to be, right? You've got to be because you're, you're, you're sitting in the room where the decisions are being made, where the strategy is being laid out, and bringing that, that view of the customer and that point of view, I think, is, is something that's always been true and will have to continue to be true for us to sort of continue to stay relevant. Um, but beyond that, I feel like almost everything has changed. Uh, even in, in you know my last I would say five to six year journey of being a CMO uh, of a line of business and now being the CMO at Broadridge, you know I feel like I'm part data scientist, part technologist, right, part salesperson, part. So we're wearing multiple hats, and I think it's really critical to wear those multiple hats because it brings us the perspective outside in, uh, and that helps us just make better better decisions. Um, for our teams, for our dollars, and then for the organization at large. So, so I think CMOs are being expected, uh, not just to be enablers of, of, of certain types of marketing programs, but to be drivers of growth and have more measurable impact on the organization, which requires us, uh, I think, to, 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 to broaden uh, both our horizon uh, and our capabilities. Which is the fun stuff, like where I feel like CMOs are always going to be challenged, right, in this sort of evolving journey of new tech and data science and uh, and just a changing media landscape and, and how measurement happens and all, I mean, all of the above.
0: If it's okay, then now we'll move into the quick fire round. Sure. So first of all, complete the sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are.
1: Humility, hunger, and hustle.
0: I often say that the only problems that worry me are the ones I can't see. So I try to be open with my team about any challenges that I have or mistakes that I make to create a space where they're comfortable doing the same. What's the mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks?
1: Also, we're all making little, little mistakes every single day. Hopefully not the big ones, but you know. I don't know if I can think of very quickly a mistake I made in the last few weeks, but it's often has to do with not following my instinct, right. And not going deep enough where you sort of have an instinct that, you know, something needs to happen a certain way uh, and, and you sort of let go of it. And, and then you kick yourself and and say, I should, you know, I should have followed the instinct and followed through the thought or the level of depth I wanted to go into, to get to a better answer.
0: Okay. Thank you. What is something that most people get wrong about you?
1: Um, I'm a natural introvert. And so I tend to be quieter in bigger meetings, uh, partially because I'm listening, partially because I'm processing. Uh, and I think often that gets translated as someone who doesn't have, uh, you know, a pointed opinion about things. And it's it's not that. It's just that I, I take my time to form an opinion. But, but once I have an opinion, then I have high conviction behind it. And so I think, I think those who don't know me then are surprised by the high conviction and the passion then behind you know, the thought and the opinion. But it, it, I take my time and you know, try and establish a fact base before I get to that.
0: Very good. And I'm the same, actually. I, I tend to be better at listening than speaking first time I hear something. Um, what are the technologies you're most excited about over the next five to 10 years?
1: I'm actually just excited about making data more usable. Right? Like for me, that's the magic. Like how do you, you know, whether it's, it's just in quantum computing, it's in, in data at scale, it's just being able to use data more effectively, uh, to guide better decisions.
0: That's a great answer. Thank you. It covers a whole host of things that probably deserve an entire, well, probably have several podcast series actually already. Um, and finally, what's one piece of advice or one idea either about marketing or about life in general that you keep coming back to?
1: I'm going to steal a phrase, uh, and I'll give you a little story behind the phrase, so it's not, it's not the rapid fire. The, the answer is rapid fire, but the story is a little bit longer. It's, it, you know, it's about mastery of the basics. Um, and I'm reading a book right now written by a colleague who I worked with at Chase, who I deeply admired. So it's actually a book she wrote with her father, who was an incredibly successful um, business leader and uh he talked about it in his book about what made him incredibly he was deeply authentic very value based in in the media industry that is not known for a lot of you know good people who are authentic and and sort of lead with strong integrity and values um and um, he talks about sort of mastery of the basics and really struck a chord with me because it's what i often see forgotten right when you think about being able to take a step back even as a as a marketer on what problem are you trying to solve and have you done the work to understand the business need, the client insight, the client problem, right? And, and that so that's I feel like mastery of the basics, being able to, you know, think in a disciplined fashion to deliver a, a clear, crisp narrative, uh, all of which, right, understand how you use data. You know, how you, you think about, you know, Amazon and, and the focus they have in writing narratives now. Uh, they, they spend the first three months almost reteaching you how to write clearly and concisely. Uh, that's the mastery of the basics. And I think that is, um, that's something that I keep going back to and reminding myself. It's almost like first principles.
0: That's a very refreshing antidote, especially at this time of year, when you start to see the celebration of shiny new things and, and what doesn't even exist yet, but will be shiny and new at some point Yes, um, to remind everyone of the value of mastering the basics. Thank you, Dipti Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: How to Grow a CMO is a production of the CMO Crowd, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. Make sure you never miss an episode by joining the CMO crowd.com slash podcasts for exclusive member only content, including events, videos, reports, and more exclusive to the CMO crowd. My name is Ali Hussain. You've been listening to how to grow a CMO by the CMO crowd.
1: You're listening to How to Grow, a CMO podcast from The CMO Crowd. The CMO Crowd is brought to you by The Marketing Practice, the global integrated agency delivering growth for big-name tech brands and ambitious B2B companies around the world. To find out more about us, visit themarketingpractice.com.